Skiffy and Fanti show. It's too bad he won't live. But then again, who does? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Paul. And we have a very special guest today. We have Marissa. Hello, Marissa. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so real quick, um, you want to let folks know who you are. are and also probably a good idea to let you know, are you a replicant? Um, I can't give that away. I'm going to keep that ambiguous, but um, I am a freelance book editor in LA, and I hang out with Paul a lot on the SFF Audio podcast, um, where we talk about a lot of Philip K. Dick books. Well, that's good, because this happens to be a sort of sequel adaptation of a Philip K. Dick book. Hmm. Kind of? Yes, which is why I thought it'd be a great idea for her to be here. That makes sense. So we're obviously here today to talk about Blade Runner 2049, uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I hope I got the pronunciation right, but I'm probably wrong. And that means we're going to have a lot of opinions. Uh, so before we do that, we probably should share what this movie is about. So who would like to provide the uh, the synopsis? I guess that's my job. Okay, so, <laughs> so the movie takes place... 30 years after the original movie in 2049, hence the title. We are we are given our nice uh, main character K, who is a Blade Runner just like just just like the old man Harrison Ford, who we will see later in the movie. K is is under the under the thumb of uh Robin Wright, of all people, who basically runs him just just like uh Harrison Ford got run back in the day. K eliminates replicants, visits visits the successor to the Tyrol Corporation, here the Wallace Corporation, and soon gets pulled into conspiracy involving his own nature. What happened to Deckard? What happened to Rachel? And what is the future of replicant technology? That's that's about that's about the plot. To get us started off, uh, I'm going to turn to Marissa and put you up first for your general reactions to the movie. What did you think? I, this was a, I have really mixed reactions. I, I went and saw it twice. So the first time I was, I just loved it so much. I had such an amazing experiment, experience that I could hardly even speak afterwards, just from the sort of sensory overload. Um, and then I went back again to look at the story a bit more. And that time, um, I saw a few flaws and a few problems with it, but I still really loved it. So, I mean, I guess to get to some more specifics without getting into spoiler territory, um, what what left you with so many mixed feelings? Because, you know, you enjoyed it the first time. So what made you like it the first time? But then when you saw it a second time, kind of started to push you away. 
Mm, I think it's actually just, it's like a mix of like all the knowledge about the, all my expectations about that world and what I wanted to happen, what I wanted to see. I, I wouldn't say the second time pushed me away. I just think the flaws became a little bit more apparent when I wasn't like completely absorbed in that. Yeah. Complete sensory experience of it. Oh, like okay. a, few of the, a few of the plot holes, you know, came, a, they were a bit clearer the second time around. <laughs> okay. So there's some sort of like, a, and I think a lot of people had this, like going into it, you, you kind of get really immersed because of the sort of visual spectacle, but you know, coming back to that where you can kind of set that aside because you've seen it, you start to maybe notice things that didn't quite work as probably intended. Yeah. You'd be a little bit more analytical about it, I guess. But I would say, yeah, but I think overall, like, I do really love it, and I and I do think for a sequel, um, it's amazing. I don't think I've ever seen a good a sequel as good as this. Okay, awesome. Well, that's that's a heck of a praise right there. You've never seen a sequel quite as good as this. Hmm. That should be on the the DVD box. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so why don't we get you in here, Paul, uh, with some general reactions from you? What did you think? Well, I only got to see it once, so if there were plot holes that are much more elevant on the on the second viewing, unfortunately, I didn't quite see those plot holes because I only had the, the one-through experience. I was blown away by the visuals. I really, really think this is kind of like his previous film, Arrival, that was a very cinematically striking movie and very lots of use of color and negative space and imagery to propel the narrative it really looks it i mean looks like it's a world 30 years on from the hellish landscape of of the of the neo-noir blade runner i really like the music the i I, once once again it has that same sort of atonality sort of very strong background music to uh help conduct and set mood Again, like Arrival, you can really tell this is the director that did Arrival. If you, because I rewatched Arrival this week and I was struck, yeah, this I could see where he took ideas from here and went into Blade Runner with that sort of palette and sound and form. And while I'm not a Ryan Gosling fan, I think he did okay, and I really like the rest of the cast that was around him. I mean, it was nice to see Harrison Ford again. It took me a moment to reckon. Recognize Robin Wright not being uh, Mrs. Underwood. It's like, oh my God, that's Robin Wright, and it, it made me remind. It reminded me oddly of the Congress, where she says that she doesn't want to do science fiction movies, and her body double or creative form does with this very striking hair cut and look, and the police captain that she plays here has almost has that same sort of look as like. I thought it was almost like a nod to her previous film. And so while I don't know whether the plot holds up on a second viewing, I, everything else just kept driving me along, even though it is a relatively long movie. It was longer than I expected it to be. It's much more of an epic than the more tightly uh, paced uh, predecessor. Interesting. Okay. You know, Ryan Gosling, I feel, is is probably actually a replicant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. Because <laughs> I do think he's a really good casting choice to play Kay. Because if ever there was somebody for whom it seemed very natural to be a slightly emotionally stunted 
robotic android person. Uh, it, Ryan Gosling is it. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was made in a laboratory somewhere. Yeah, he, for this he, movie specifically. For this movie, probably, definitely, yeah. right? They were planning <laughs> this for all 20 plus years of his life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do find it interesting that the promotional information and the previews and whatnot don't make it clear something that's, that this is not a spoiler because we find out in like five minutes that Kay's a replicant. It's, it's absolutely integral, important to the plot. And I didn't know, really just know that going in. It's like, oh, he's a replicant. It's not a plot twist. It can't be a plot twist if it's five minutes in. It's just like, that's something that the marketing of the movie didn't make actually clear that, yes, he's a Blade Runner like, like Deckard, but it's upfront that, yes, he's a replicant. Deal with it. And the movie has to deal, has to deal with that as part of the main, one of the main runs of the plot. But it does seem like a very interesting parallel because if you watch the original Blade Runner, you know, Harrison Ford is capable of much more emotive acting, but he's not really doing that in, in Blade Runner. Like his emotions are really muted. So it seemed like that was a deliberate callback as they were trying to get that, that comparison being made. Cause Ryan Gosling, I mean, you, there, well, there's reasons why we'll get into it later, but, uh, uh, th- there is a kind of, I think, a, a like a, a connection that exists between those characters that maybe was an intentionality that's here, but I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's just reading too much into it, but it seemed like that's what they were going for. I think you might be right because it can't be just explained by being a replicant because when you think about like Pris and Roy Batty and stuff in the last Blade Runner, they weren't exactly stoic. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Roy Batty in particular is, is a, it has Shakespearean levels of melodrama and passion, mm. in this, especially in his final scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even though with, there's you know issues with how their emotions play out, like when you think by comparison to Deckard, like Roy Batty clearly feels pain on an emotional level, and I'm not sure that Deckard actually does. He his pain when he exhibits it seems to be physical. But it doesn't seem like it's affecting him psychologically, where Roy Batty clearly is being affected in the mind. It's not just the physical pain, like the very act of his mortality and mm. the impending death is like weighing on his his psyche and is leading him to do things that to us seem monstrous at times, but perhaps make some sort of sense from his perspective. Uh-huh. Whereas in this film, there are aspects of this where like that seems to have been a thing that they were deliberately trying to weed out in the replicants, but also playing up on other aspects of those emotional components, like trying to play up the positive emotional components, but downplay the potentially hazardous ones, which is interesting for the main character whose job is literally to murder his own kind. Mm hmm. And yet he is being forced to be a muted, like being whose ability to express actual emotion connection is so stunted, which is interesting for other aspects of this movie, because he does have a kind of relationship in this. But it's weird that the the person I will call that that is person he's having a relationship with is far more emotive than he ever is in it, despite the fact that we kind of figure out that he does actually feel something. Sort of, maybe. I don't know. Does yeah. he? Hard to say. I think so. In the bridge scene toward the end, it's cl- it's clear that he definitely felt something for Joy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. So, 
Okay, well, well, I know we're going to kind of verge into, I guess, spoiler territory, so I should give my general reactions before we get there, uh, mm-hmm. because there's a lot that we could talk about. So, I'm a little bit more negative on this film. Why so? It is really beautiful. It, 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 it The visuals are, are stunning, but there are aspects of this film that, to me, felt like the director was trying to have that kind of plotting slow deliberate meticulous pace of the original blade runner but doesn't to me seem like he's actually saying anything with a lot of his his slower sequences they were just to me felt like this is a really pretty scene it felt like aspects of the revenant which you know i enjoyed the revenant but it's not a film that i've ever felt a desire to go back to precisely because it's just it's like 12 hours long and most of it is like pictures of trees and water. And it's like, those are gorgeous, but I would rather have Morgan Freeman narrating a, a nature documentary <laughs> than watch, you know, three hours of freaking Leonardo DiCaprio crawling on the ground. <laughs> so that to me, a lot of that kind of came back to this because so much of what's happening in this film is we're getting a lot of these big questions about, you know, human nature and, and replicants and all of this stuff. And then we get all of this stuff where it's not doing any of that. It's just sort of like, here's a sequence with some bees. Why do we have a sequence with bees? I don't know. We won't come back to it. We won't do anything with it. Here's some bees. And that, to me, I think was a big problem. Is Unlike with Arrival, which seemed to be saying a lot with its very slow and very sort of very quiet scenes. Those scenes where there's not really a, like a lot there, but the sort of visual and what we're being shown... There is meaning being imparted to us, right? It, it, we're getting something more out of it. And so much of this film, I didn't feel like we were getting stuff out of it. And then the other issue I had with it is that unlike the classic Blade Runner, one of the things that has made that film still has so much cultural relevancy, in my opinion, is that it never asks the questions that people obsess over. So to give you kind of the, the big example, we have been talking about whether or not Deckard is a replicant for 30 years right? The, more than 30 years now, I guess. And that's a question that the film never directly asks. Blade Runner never asked that. It's a question that you, you raise yourself, right? Because nobody gets to the end and goes, oh, is Deckard actually a replicant? The book raises it, but the movie doesn't. And that's what I think is so great, is that it raises that question by the audience. And this asks questions very directly and then answers them. And the answers are just kind of meh to me. They're not... Like, I, I felt like there was a mistake to answer questions, to ask them and then a- offer a very hard yes or no answer. And that, to me, I didn't really enjoy. So that's why I think I'm a little bit more negative on the film is, you know, despite its visual spectacle, it does things that I just feel like were mistakes or felt overly pretentious for no real reason. And this yeah. is the point where someone reaches through and strangles me, I'm sure. No, I I didn't find it pretentious, but I I totally agree with you that I didn't, I think it is missing those like big questions and hanging things. And, and I think that's one of the biggest, yeah, things that I'm missing from it. Like just those, those things that you can wonder about afterwards. There's a couple of little things, but they're not like, they're not like they were from the original Blade Runner. Yeah. Like I think that his relationship, for example, we can, exactly, there are yeah. questions there that I don't think the film directly asked that we certainly could ask, but because it's only like a, a sort of subplot thread, it's not really a focus. I, I feel that it's just a question that we can like sort of talk about, but it isn't really going to be have the same staying power. Whereas I feel like because 
Deckard's humanness is so important to understanding his relationship to the replicants he's murdering, which I, I use that word deliberately. He is murdering people, I think, in that film. And I think that's precisely it is by comparing him. Right. Here's this guy who has all this. I'm, we're talking so much about the other movie because for Christ's sake, it's such classic for a reason. Uh-huh. Uh, no emotion. He's this person who murders and seems to show nothing versus these people who maybe have misguided emotions, but are like desperately trying to survive and are set in a world that hates their guts and wants to enslave them or murder them. Like that contrast is beautiful and amazing. And then in this film, I just don't, we don't get that. We don't get that as a, a major component. And I feel like, well, then what were we supposed to get? What, what was the, the point that you were ultimately driving for? Is it just the destiny of the main character? Is, is that it? And if so, you've already given us the answer. Mm-hmm. I think this film as well, it, it almost like reflected, like in reverse, those questions that the original Blade Runner asks, but they're not so interesting on the reflected side. Like it, yeah, like the, the position the main character is in flipping that and flipping his consciousness. It's kind of, um, they're not as interesting from that side. I'm trying not to give spoilers. Or like. Yeah, <laughs> I have a response to this, but it would be immensely spoilery, spoilery yeah. well, to go with. Let's just do this then, because I've given my general reaction, and obviously we want to get into specifics. So this is the moment when there is now a spoiler world. So if you do not want specific details revealed to you, stop the podcast, go see the movie, which I think all of us would agree you should see in theaters anyway, regardless of any criticism we are laying down. Go see the movie, then come back, finish the podcast. So spoiler wall right now. Go. All right, Paul, bring on your specific. Okay, so this this movie is really not Kay's story. It's not Deckard's story. What this movie is, is the future of the next more than human race, that is the replicants, and does so by a brilliant retcon that I, I'm sure Dick didn't think of, and I'm sure uh, Ridley Scott wasn't thinking of when he named the character Rachel. So I'm going. I'm going to lay down some uh, some uh, truth bombs on you. Okay. So Rachel. Mm-hmm. So I, after this movie, I and after seeing what happened and seeing her story, I did a little googling, at, because well, it's been a long time since I read the Bible. Do you know who Rachel was in the Bible? It, is she the one that uh, stole all Jesus's bread? No, Rachel oh. was the mother of Joseph. I As in the leader <laughs> of what's that? I know who she is. I was just messing. Okay, around. okay, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're going. To... But for others, no. But yeah, so so the so the, 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 the mother, mother of Joseph, the mother yeah. of Joseph, basically the mother of Israel, mother of the chosen people. Oh, so the director basically took the idea. Like, okay, so we have this replicant named Rachel. We can t- we can use that name and basically make her the mother of the next species, basically by giving her the pregnancy and the whole issue with with the child and a line of replicants that can give birth they're based that's basically the successor to humanity i'm i was i was thinking of as i was thinking about all this about ai artificial intelligence and how the robots there basically become in the end the successors to extinct humanity humanity created them and they outlasted them and humanity freezes away and the robots are left trying to figure out what humanity was. It's almost like this is taking place in the AI universe, but this is this is a spot ahead of where the Haley Joel Osment character goes underwater. And this is where 
the future of the next species starts with a robot replicant created being that is that is fertile and can give birth. I found it really interesting that this movie doesn't make clear one way or the other the whole Deckard question. Whether is Deckard a replicant or not? I know, depending on which version of the movie you look at, of the original, whether Deckard or not is a replicant is an open question. If you look at the more recent director's cuts, it's clearly suggested to be. And here they sidestep that question entirely and say, oh, we don't know. They leave it ambiguous. But even if he was or wasn't, the idea that, well, the mother is a replicant and the mother, Rachel, is going to be the mother of a new species, just like Rachel was the mother of Joseph, the the mother of Israel. And basically, Kay's story, Deckard's story, Love's story, Wallace's story, they all basically wrap around, I mean, aside from the motion capture and stuff that we see at the Wallace Corporation, she's not even in this story at all, but it is still her story that we see through, reflected through these people chasing after a simple question of finding what happened to a baby delivered from a cesarean section that shouldn't have existed. So I actually don't think this film did sidestep the Deckard question. Hmm. You've seen it twice, Marissa, that it's kind of mentioned, but not really addressed one way or the other what he really is. Yeah, that's what I got. Oh, I got the very distinct impression that, in fact, he was not, and that the issue here was not just simply replicants having children, but that it was a human-replicant hybrid, okay. which is where the great threat to humanity comes. Because that's what Robin Wright's character keeps saying is, it'll tear the whole system down. I never really got a full sense about why it was going to tear everything down, but she kept saying it, so it must have been important. Uh, <laughs> oh, now, now you're being mad on Robin Wright. Don't, don't hate Robin no, Wright, No, it's not John. her fault. It's like, she's just reading <laughs> the lines. I'll give her, you know. It's, sorry, Lieutenant Joshi. But, like, that's the the threat isn't just that the replicants could have children, because that's, I mean, okay, yeah, I mean, but if replicants can have kids, then that's just a programming thing. Like, they, they oh, they made biological life, they can make babies, that just, that's not as threatening as the idea, no, 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 they can actually make human children who are part replicant. And that was the implication I got is that that was what made Rachel and Deckard a threat, was that they had a a child that was a hybrid child, and that would upend the entire system, because now the artificial separation is impossible. Uh, this is sort of like the fundamentals of of sort of racist ideology, is like, oh, well, well white people are separated uh, because we're a different species. Well, sorry, but by the definition of species, if you can have viable children with a member of another group, then, then they're not separate species they're in fact the same but it works either way i mean if deckard is a replicant then you're basically the replicants can basically create themselves without without the intervention of man they can do whatever they want they can be whatever they want so even if deckard is a replicant it's still a threat because you basically have created another intelligent species on earth and you know how well humans play with other intelligent species that are like them, look at the history of the Neanderthals and um, the hobbits and every other human species that has shared shared the planet with Homo sapiens and its ancestors. It's never gone well. We've always, we exterminate our competition. And so, I mean, replicants that can breed with them, breed and create at will are basically a threat, especially because 
there there's just not going to be subjects to the same controls and strictures that the ones that are created by the Wallace Corporation are. They're they're free. You could you could read this as a metaphor for freedom from slavery. I'm also I'm not sure she ever knew about Decker either, did she? I, I think Who, she was only free. No, Joshi, uh, Yoshi, whatever her name was. Joshi? Joshi, uh, no, Yoshi. No, I don't think she actually knew about Decker. I mean, she knew De- Decker went to Las Vegas, and I I just want to say I love the vision of Las Vegas in this movie. It, it's mm-hmm. cinematically striking the the fall, the fallen city with the dust storms and yeah. the, the desertion. But yeah, Joshi doesn't know. Love, love clearly knows where he's going, but and the Wallace Corporation does, but not Joshi. I think Joshi's just freaked out about them being able to give birth. I don't think she knows about that it could be a human father. Yeah, because I think that's what she's worried about is... Well, because, that, again, I think... That I, well, maybe I'm, I need to rewatch it, but I just got the very strong impression that that's what everyone's freaked out about, is that it might be a hybrid child. Mm, I think that's the more interesting question, if he is. like That, that is the like more exciting way to yeah. read into it. But I just don't, I don't think she knew that yet. I think it's... I think they're only freaked out by the fact that a replicant has given birth, full stop. But I guess then that leads me to the pr- a problem I have then, is, is if that is what it's meant to be, if I go rewatch it and I and that is in fact what's going on, and that it's very clear in, in the movie that that's the case and I just misread, then that, that leaves me in a really uncomfortable position of not seeing Jared Leto's Wallace character as, as villainous. As, exactly. And I mean, he's... He's, he's one of those things. Like, yeah. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> he's definitely a villain. He, But he's not really. Well, well, he's he's trying to control the replicants. He dispatches love to do bad things. He's a genius asshole, as was pointing out. It was pointed out he, he very much resembles um, the antagonist in Ex Machina. So, so, someone br- brilliant, intelligent, lots of money and power, and absolutely amoral. And he'll torture Deckard for the information he wants. Yep. Yeah, he will. Um, but I guess what makes him less villainous to me is that if it's just replicants, his, I mean, yes, the way in which he's interested is he clearly views the, the replicants as not human, but he finds some sort of deep philosophical value in the very notion of life itself like the creation of life because what he's essentially doing is creating life but he's not really creating life in his worldview it's it's sort of it's half measures right they're mm-hmm. not quite human i mean I, I don't agree with that but that's his perspective he disposes them rather rapidly I mean, consider the the fake right. ritual he made and it's imperfect that he kills her without a second thought yes it's because he doesn't value them but there's something deeper about his interest in their reproductive life, which is there's that great, great is maybe the wrong word, but horrific scene in which he basically births a replicant. And he's doing this thing we've seen in, it's basically a Jurassic Park scene with the Velociraptors, right? Where, mm-hmm. where Hammond is like, I want to be present for when they all are there because I want them to imprint on me. It's that <laughs> scene, but even more evil because he meets this replicant, which clearly the birthing process for replicants is, is pretty traumatic. It's, I guess, imagined like a birth, but if you're an adult, fully grown creature and he basically cuts her across 
roughly speaking where you would imagine the womb would be for like a cesarean section mm-hmm. uh it cuts her and just she like bleeds out and dies and he does that because it seems to me that what this is suggesting is that he's wanting to find the ultimate key to life and that he hasn't found it yet and he's still building these things but what makes that to me less villainous than the other characters is that we can see the depravity in what he's doing. He has fundamentally rejected these things, the, these replicants as people. He, they are things and it is their, their value that the ideal idea value of their bodies that is of, of interest. But at least we can sort of see that and it's very simplistic. But the other people that are involved in this are actually far more villainous. Robin Wright's character, Lieutenant Joshi, there are moments when I think we're supposed to like her, but I actually was glad she was killed in this movie by a replicant because she is no less evil. She sends our main character, which we haven't talked about, Ryan Gosling's K, to these reprogramming meetings where they basically manipulate his brain, or at least that's the implication, so that he does as he's told. Like, she doesn't view him as human either, and she wants to keep this replicant thing secret not because she cares about Kay, despite any kind of attempts she gives to suggest that, but to protect the human race from her perspective. At least Jared Leto, like, I get what he's doing. I think he's evil and he's immoral, but she is on, uh, doing this nonsense where she's trying to give the impression that she is actually the moral authority and is in fact not. She's actually providing the rhetorical justification for mass slavery and making people who are part of a group murder their own kind. Yes, that she's definitely she definitely has antagonist overtones. She wants humanity on top no matter what, and she yeah. is willing to use a replicant to hunt other replicants and sees absolutely no problem with that she she's a very i mean the the first movie is definitely neo-noir this is very different i mean she's hard bitten but she's not a noir character in the slightest she's just balls to the wall basically i'm going to make humanity keep humanity on top and then help replicants on the bottom and i'll use and i'll use k to do it and k has to do it and we'll change k if necessary to make that happen yeah, I think we see her as well. Like, I think that's meant to be just the whole society is like that, and we see her like almost softening to him a little bit. Um, you know, giving him that chance to get away, and sort of like not. Uh, I think there's like a moment as well where she's sort of attracted to him almost as a human. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> what does she say? Something like, "What happens if I drink the rest of this bottle or something of whiskey?" Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, "Uh, no." <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think the society is like that. Like it's just completely screwed yeah. up, and she's yeah, basically like a slave owner in the LAPD. Yeah, I guess like a lot of people are gonna have to take big issues with Jared Leto's character because I feel like whether they intended this or not, he comes off as as the end result of the sort of tech dude bro like James Damore version of reality. And I feel like that that's because of the climate in our culture. We're inclined to think that's more villainous, but I guess it just, for me, it's, there's something more insidious about the people who give the impression they care and who may not really. Mm. And yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe it's like the difference between like, you know, do, do we feel that, that the people who are like way openly racist right now are worse than the people who've probably always been racist, but we, we had to like 
figure it out using context clues and like digging around uh, who is actually the one that's more likely to do damage in our world today i would argue that it's the people who are racist but who can give the veneer of not yeah because they can work within the system to do evil shit whereas mm-hmm. like nobody well okay most people would assume you won't get an actual diet in the world running around hitler saluting neo-nazi in a position of significant authority they're always like going to be the steve bannons of the world and robin wright is the the steve bannon of this world more like the the sheriff was the the evil sheriff guy clark that guy that's robin wright i mean not robin wright lieutenant joshi sorry i'm sorry not to defame robin wright robin wright's amazing (laughs) <laughs> as, as a human being anyway i'm sorry i'm like rambling about this and yeah so i'll shut up <laughs> so did you the one thing i couldn't figure out with this movie is like i don't actually understand what wallace really wants like what his i, I don't totally understand why he wants the replicants to be able to give birth did yeah. you guys get that like if he can kind of he's almost like 3d printing replicants so why does he want them to breed with each other it seemed to me that what they were going for was like, this is like, he's hit all of the variations of the existing product he can do. And he is, he is like that person that just wants to create the next thing. It's sort of like Jurassic world. Like we did T-Rex and we did the other, (laughs) the other one, the Allosaurus or whatever. And what do we do next? Well, let's make a hybrid because why not? I, I, I also think it's something slightly different actually. It's, 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 it's not that. I, I think he's trying to recreate and recapture the, the hold Terrell had in the previous generation. I mean, the Terrell Corporation collapsed. Wallace took it over and he's been, tra- yeah. he's, he's, he's been trying with the new models is basically trying to capture that magic since. Yeah. He does talk about that. He's something like he's talking about the Tyrell perfection that was. Um, like procreation created and then lost or something like he's searching for that whatever Tyrell figured out right he's looking he's looking for what Tyrell had been able to achieve and 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 was lost and now is just trying to capture the back again at any cost because it would be it would show that he's the better he's the better man he's not just aping aping Tyrell he's reached him and and, and exceeded him so it's kind of like almost like a holy grail in a sense. It's like that that secret. He had the secret and he, now he's lost and he, it was there and now he wants it to grasp it again because because he, he is he is a tech bro with uh weird uh weird issues kinda of, kinda of like Nathan in Ex Mahina. What why yeah. why, 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 why does Nathan want to create Ava in Ex Mahina? Because he can, because he thinks it'd be cool. I mean he he, he talks a good game of oh, there the AIs are going to look back at them as, and as uh, all set for extinction. And even with that knowledge, Nathan still wants to create an AI, even knowing that he thinks himself that it will lead to the eventual extinction of humanity just because he's arrogant enough to think he should be the one to do it. And so Wallace is the same way. He's got that same sort of insane and driven sort of desire so mm. Mm. so he was one of the things that when i rewatched it that i was just like oh, i just don't really get this guy and i i didn't really i couldn't really understand what yeah what he wanted so badly or why he wanted it 
Yeah, it seemed like a, a hell of a thing to have to say, given Jared Leto's social capital is changing lately. Uh, we needed mo- a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to just give us, like, and this is one of the things that maybe this is, this is actually one of those few things that the movie does where it doesn't answer the question, it, or it doesn't ask the question necessarily, and it doesn't quite answer it, and we have to kind of figure it out by, like, rewatching his scenes over and over, trying to get the clues. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Y- he's certainly creepy. Yeah, he was creepy. And if there was any pretentious part of the movie, I do think it came from his character, though. Like, the the rambling way. I don't even know what he was saying half the time. <laughs> but I think that's, like, who he is, right? He's meant to be... He's meant to be a pretentious dude, bro. Yeah. Tech, techie, yeah. A tech bro uh, turd canoe. Like, that's basically <laughs> what he is. He, he he most definitely is. And yeah. And, yeah, so, I mean... I don't think we're supposed to, like, listen to him talk and be like, for the love of God, nobody punch him in the face right now. We're supposed to think the exact right. opposite. <laughs> like, for the love of God, Harrison Ford, punch him. Yeah. Please punch him. Yeah. So, okay. Well, then, I I guess, like, that leads us um, to some other elements here. Uh, there's, like, a lot of stuff. But I, we'd mentioned earlier about um, the character of uh, of Joy. Joy. Uh, mm-hmm. Played by Ana de Armas, uh, who is um i bet you before right the relationship with uh k is interesting and that is because joy is a a essentially like a love robot but not nest not a robot because she's an artificial intelligence slash hologram mm-hmm. similar to i guess like what we got in the movie of her except her explicit purpose appears to be as a companion ai and i got the I got this interesting confusion in the movie because I, I really liked her character and the relationship she has with Kay, mm-hmm. even though if it seems a little bit exploitative and kind of concerning. But I also felt like the film was trying to give us like this suggestion that he is mimicking the behavior of a, you know, a normal human living person, but that that scene on the bridge, right, where the sort of big hologram advertisement version of her is like interacting with him gave me the strong impression that if the relationship is real, it's real for us, not necessarily for the AI. And I'm not entirely sure if it is, is for K. I, it might be. I, I do think that for most of the movie, it definitely looks like that K and joy have a relationship that joy has autonomy and a sense of self purpose. After all, she's the one that wants him to take her with him rather than she doesn't say, Oh, delete me or just turn me off. It's like, no, take a copy so she can be with him. So for most of the movie, we get this impression that she's exceeded her programming and says she really is a companion that, so that in the sense that we have replicants, which are artificially made biological intelligences that here we have a virtual artificial intelligence, but then comes the sting in the tail. After she gets destroyed and he goes and he sees the ad and the ad interacts with them and the ad calls him a Joe just like she had, which seemed at the time to be her showing a sense of propriety and giving him a name. But that's really just only part of the actual fantasy. So it's a fantasy of artificial intelligence rather than the real thing. It's a really convincing fantasy. But there's nothing to suggest, especially once we get to that bridge scene, that it was anything other than just some complex programming, and that's devastating. That 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 that, that scene made me go, yeah. "Oh crap!" 
all along. Like, yeah, because we've been following this relationship all along and now it's turned out to be smoke and mirrors. And I do think it does hit Kate in the feels. Yeah, I think that this relationship, this is like the whole, the best part of the movie and the whole heart of the movie for me. And I think it is real. And I think what we saw is two products falling in love with each other and well, like trying that. to act like mm. humans because that's the only way they know love. And that's like their highest, like they, they're both like striving to be human. You know, they keep on talking to each other like, you're a real boy. And she's like, I want to be like a real girl. And they're kind of like acting in this kind of corny, like, you know, she's bringing out the dinner and acting like a kind of corny housewife. And I think that's just all they know. But I think their feelings are real, even though they're programmed. And that's an interesting thing, because with her, and I know a lot of people are probably going to criticize this sequence because it's it is it, it's problematic is the best word I can say right now. But the the sex scene that exists, because she's a hologram, she doesn't have a physical form. And so she hires Mackenzie mm-hmm. Davis's Mariette, who is a... It appears to be spy slash underground member of an underground resistance slash prostitute replicant. And so Joy hires her and like sinks her hologram to Mariette in order to like basically try to recreate a physical experience. And well, I I, I can see why a lot of people are going to have problems with that. It's actually kind of a sweet thing because there is a kind of very strong sense that the 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 physical limits of their relationship are are an issue. I mean, because remember, there's that b- really beautiful moment, and this is where I think the first time you realize that even though she's a hologram, she f- seems like she has real emotions. Is when he brings home that little device that allows him allows her to project mm-hmm. elsewhere, and while he can't turn it on and off, it's it, it seems like she's just really yeah. excited to have the opportunity to be with him outside of the home as though it's very genuine. So I don't know. There's, there's aspects of it where it's like, maybe that's one of those things that the, maybe the film is asking, uh, leading us to ask the question is, is it real? And if so, how do we know? Because if, because like, I guess this leads us to like to the, to the Harrison Ford thing to some degree too, because of the relationship with Rachel, I never got the impression of Blade Runner that they were ever in love, that it, it felt not real but this feels so real but yet we have strong implications that it might not be so maybe that's one Mm -hmm. of those big questions is does it actually matter that is the the cool question this one leaves you with yeah and and, it's programmed it's programmed but but is that is that so viable and necessary in a world that is dying it's like find comfort where you can even if it's uh just lines of code even if they're both lines of code in a sense I mean, she was programmed to fall in love and be everything he wanted, you know? So like, but she is, she thinks she's feeling these feelings because after that scene with the hooker, and if you remember when the hooker is leaving, they kind of have like a little bit of tension and the, um, she's like, Oh yeah, I've been inside you. There's not as much in there as you like to think, you know? So she's kind of like letting joy know that she thinks she's in love and she thinks she has all these feelings, but she's just code. Yeah. That's kind of cruel. But it, that reaction is that, yeah, that's a great, then you're right. That, that scene's a perfect example. It's like two women throwing barbs mm-hmm. at each other, you know, in a way, this sort of like a jealousy thing. It's, it is, it's a really interesting sequence. I, it, because I agree with you. I agree with you that one of the things I really was captivated by was this relationship. I, I think this is one of the best parts mm-hmm. of the film just because of the way in which it asks so many interesting questions 
provide some answers and provide some non-answers. Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah. maybe this movie does leave you with a question. Because I think that is the thing that I've thought about the most after I just keep on thinking about Joy and trying to be like... Yeah, trying to figure out what she felt and what was real to her. I I mean, when she gets stomped on, I felt... I, as the viewer, felt like, oh, no, you bitch! Yeah, Yeah, that was awful. And it was so quick. Yeah, and this is one of those things that, like, it really... Like, I just... When I think about living in a future in which there are things like this, I feel it would be really easy for me to develop very real emotions for somebody that I know is not... Like, is is an AI Mm. or an artificial person... I know that I am capable of that because my reaction in that sequence was I didn't feel for Kay. I felt horrible because she's dead. She's gone. And I'm like, please tell me like, there's like a secret way you can save her because I want her back. Uh, And that's a moment when I was like, I feel for somebody who's heavily implied to have been a programmed non-physical being more than I'm feeling for the human ish characters that are there. Yeah, and I think we're we're born like that. Like when you think about like in your childhood when you have this like really strong attachment to like a favorite toy or or even if you see someone's toy like discarded yeah. and you know that it's been like well loved, like you can feel that kind of attachment to something that isn't actually another human or another person, but you feel like it's your friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe maybe I was wrong. Maybe there is a little bit more meat in here <laughs> than I anticipated. <laughs> It is a very compelling film, and I and I will say that while I had a ish- lot of issues with it, and I probably will have a harsher grade than the rest of you, this is an example of the kind of film that I want when a film fi- doesn't meet my expectations, because I can't stand movies that seem to me to have been lazily written that then suck. And this is a film that I feel like it's trying for so much and trying to reach for these very big things and i think a lot of times stumbles and i would much rather have that than the kind of like we went by paint by the numbers kind of stuff like i haven't been watching movies a lot um recently because i'm just so disappointed by so many of them like it hurts but this is this movie makes me want to like watch start watching film more regularly again like i was like yeah this is what i want in science fiction and it, we've had a couple great examples of that, you know, over the past few years of just really exceptional sci-fi films asking really in- interesting questions or trying to do really interesting things. Like in a lot of ways, this film is like sci-fi's answer to the Revenant. It's it is like oh, yeah. an art film. <laughs> yep, I totally agree there. I, I mentioned at the beginning. Just consider just how wonderfully this movie is shows its world it shows a world on environmental collapse we have seawalls because the oceans are battering at los angeles we get this toxic ash snow falling on the city which is both terrifying and amazing at the same time we get these devastated landscapes that Kate travels through it's like oh yeah people child labor child child labor (laughs) san diego basically nuked and now a junkyard and yeah the ruins of las vegas it's just like the, the this world is a decaying shadow of its former self it, it takes all our general fears about climate change and environmental degradation and these powerful themes and just shows them on screen they don't have to say anything about how bad things are he just shows it and lets lets us see that the blade runner universe is 
if anything, worse than our own. Mm. And somehow makes it insanely beautiful. Yeah. I mean, th- 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 this movie is just gorgeous to look at. I'm, I mean, just like I bought Mad Max Fury Road on the single image of that storm. I mean, there's plenty of other things stuff to love about Mad, that Mad Max Fury Road. But when I saw that image in the, in the theater, I was like, okay, I have to own this. It's like this, this image of them going into, into the devastated Las Vegas is, that's just such gorgeous use of color and, and evocation is like, damn. Even the interior when they they visit uh, when he goes and finds I almost said Han Solo but that's not <laughs> who it is <laughs> Deckard the inside of that building's like amazing right and it's just a lot of visual detail that's presented uh, which I think is is just wonderful even that great sequence with the uh, the like hologram oh yeah and, Elvis the, and, 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 and the all of that stuff that was hilarious that that firefight with the, with the holograms behind him, that's hilarious. And beautifully done. I love that sequence. I know. Did you notice as well how much of that was done in silence? And like, all you can hear is like the clicking of the bulbs of those lights behind them. Like, it's so cool. And it would keep coming in and out. These like big shocking moments when the sound yeah. would come in from the, the performance. And so you'd have these silences and then you'd get like this mm-hmm. jolt of, of a sound. And the film does that a lot mm-hmm. with sound actually, where and I know that some people have mentioned that it was really loud, and I, and I agree in some parts that maybe there were some mistakes made in in the sound design. But overall, like this film is it is it is visual and it's and it's, it's very op- audio. It's, it's already audio. oral, it's, yes. And it does this amazing thing with sound, where it's just like even with like the Tangerine Dream, there's like hints of that, right? Some of the theming does come back, and there's like hints of like this is what Tangerine Dream would be like if they were in the Blade Runner world, still making their music. And this is what we'd end up with. And like, there's these moments where you have these beautiful shots of, of the city and just like, it's just a shot of the city with like a, a, you know, stuff flying around showing the advertisement like we had in the Blade Runner, but rather than that kind of ethereal sort of stuff we got in the original Blade Runner, this is like harsh and sort of like, this is a world that is falling apart and we want mm-hmm. you to hear what that mm. sounds like the decay and dissonance yep. of the world and it's deafening in in ty- at times, and I think that's intentional. It's supposed to be like like imagine living in this place. It's not the Blade Runner we saw before, which was dirty, you know. But it was like there was life in the city. That great sequence in the early part of Blade Runner where Deckard goes and he meets with the Noodle Man, whose name I, I don't think name. he has the name in the movie. And he just meets this noodle man. And he has this like quick conversation with him. And there's a little bit of the speaking of the other language going on and all these kinds of things. It's just like this lot of little bits of character. And this one, a lot of the times our characters are like these decayed creatures, right? Like the guy running the, the child labor camp living in basically a wasteland. And he is not all there, right? He is a man who's like watching his world fall apart. And he's just trying to hold the pieces together as much as he can. But he's not holding them very well. Just like all these little characters where it's all just decay. And, and, and we, we get a cameo of a very elderly gaff. We do. I will admit I was extremely disappointed that we didn't have any of his sort of Chinese-Hungarian-infused weird language yep. that he invented for Blade mm. Runner. I think there's a touch of it in the, um, did you watch the those little in-between shorts, like the anime? Oh, I might have missed one. I didn't see those, uh those tie-ins. Yeah, you get a little bit of gaff in there with his, he does a little bit of his language in there. I heard about them. I mean, I mean, apparently they did something similar to the, what they did for the Matrix movies between the original Matrix and then the the three sequels. They came up with these little 
little webisode sort of things for Blade Runner. I haven't seen them yet. I'm kind of disappointed that they would put key things into there and at in the actual movie. I'm I don't. I think they actually are key. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I, I, I feel I feel very conflicted about the that use of transmedia because it. I mean, while it, in some cases it can extend the movie, in other cases it means the actual movie is incomplete. And I just just like novels, even in the first novel of the series, I want a nice end ramp. I don't want to, I want to be able to have a complete story. Mm -hmm. I want to have a complete story in a movie. I don't need to want to have to read a, see a movie or read a novel. I mean, I don't, you don't need to see them. It's just, but it is just backstory. So it just gives you like a little bit of extra. But it it does. I mean, yeah, you're right. They're they're backstory. So like there's a one with the Dave Bautista's character, Sapper Morton. And and that one's actually really, really good and makes me wonder what that movie mm. would have looked like except now we know what what happened to poor Saber morton uh he, he dies and sad and you just want to hug him because he looks so delicate and you just i want to i want home anyway but i do feel like there are aspects of that like it's a very interesting decision that this film and i know some people have criticized this but blade runner for all of its weird treatment of women right because the rachel relationship with the rachel character is basically domestic abuse uh in that movie aside from that right that is a film that has a lot of interesting cultural mergers going on a lot of interesting sort of subtext happening in terms of the advertising and what's being advertised and those kinds of things and i feel like a lot of that gets left out here and and i don't know if that's intentional what they wanted was like this is a world that's trying to clean itself up and like our our world in a lot of ways historically has tried to create a dominant culture and that's what this is going for but it seemed to me like this is a world that is very white, very English speaking, very monoculture. And I want the answer for why it is, because before it wasn't like, well, in any case, uh, I mean, there are like a lot of other things we could talk about, but I, I don't, we can't. So, do so, 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 so let's go wrap up with final thoughts, I think, in grade. We should. Re- yeah, let's wrap up final thoughts. So since I've talked way too much, I'll just be super brief okay. and I'll just go first. When I came into this, I was actually going to give this a much harsher grade. Talking with you two about this movie has suggested to me that uh, I maybe need to see this movie again. So originally I was going to give us a much lower grade. Right now, I am very inclined to say that I think this is a B. Okay, that, that's, I, that's a fair grade. So anyway, so we'll turn it to you, Paul. What is your final thoughts on your grade? I. I was expecting a tighter movie. This is much more of a longer, more ponderous is not quite the word. It's much more, it's less and it's much more than I expected. It, it touches on a lot of themes. It takes a lot of ideas and throws them against the wall. And, and it made me rethink a bit, bit about the original movie, especially with whole Rachel's story and what Tyrell was going to do. And that, and I had to rewatch the original Blade Runner twice and, Think about think about it in context of this movie. I need to watch this movie again to think about some of the things we talked about. It's gorgeous. It's it's a, it's another Vinovlov masterpiece in terms of sound and uh, the visual experience. It's something I definitely want to see again. And and it's a movie that doesn't try to get you in and out and just leave you with a sense of fun. It it asks it asks questions and doesn't answer all of them and doesn't always ask the questions that we had wanted from the original Blade Runner. And I appreciate it for that. I don't think it's perfect. I think it could have been a little tighter. Maybe a little couple things uh, 
jiggles here and there to make it a slightly better story. There's something, a little things underwritten, but I'm going to give it a solid B+. Plus. All right, not bad. All right, Marissa, it's up to you now. Final thoughts and your grade. I was pretty afraid to watch such a long movie because my attention span is pretty short these days, but I I didn't find it too slow. I love the pacing. I love the experience. I love the visuals. I loved Kay's story. Like, it's definitely got some flaws. We didn't talk about the resistance, which I no, we- hated those people. But <laughs> that little yeah, army. Agreed, though. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when I went back to watch it again, I thought, oh, you know, I might need to like sneak out and use the bathroom or something, and I can just do it in a slow part that's not like, you know, got me completely riveted. And that didn't happen. I just watched the whole movie the second time, like completely absorbed. And I kind of want to watch it again. So I have to give it an A. I, I would never go see a movie more than once in the theater normally. High praise. It's really up there for me, yeah. Well, excellent. Okay, so that, there you go. So those are our thoughts, everybody. Uh, Obviously, this is kind of a big movie, so if you have any opinions you'd like to share with us, send us an email. You can go to skiffingfanny at gmail.com, send an email to us, and that would be be lovely. Uh, Marissa, do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your various things? Uh, Yeah, you can find me. uh, My website is marissavu.com, or Twitter is also marissavu. And you're also on, I believe we've already mentioned, SFF Audio. Yes, you can. Yeah, me and Paul are on SFF Audio. We talk about a lot of science fiction books on there, but a ton of Philip K. Dick books. We're trying to read the whole... Philip K. Dick's whole works. Well, perfect. Okay, so go check out all of her stuff. We'll obviously have links in the show notes for this episode, so you can do that. Also, two quick things for this podcast, if you could. Uh, one, you can support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash giffinginfanti. So if you have uh, inheritance from family that you would like to get rid of, that's a really great way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, if you could, if you enjoy our show and you are on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those systems, or all of them for that matter, um, if you could give us a review. That would be wonderful, because uh, the more reviews we get, the more likelihood that uh, President President Barack Obama will be on the show, and we're pretty sure that's going to help with the ratings. So thank you so much, Marissa, for coming on the show and uh, honestly making this a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Awesome. And thank you, Paul, for being you. Thank, thank, thank you, Sean, <laughs> for letting me be on. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, on that note, awkward ending and scene. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at SkiffyInfanti at gmail.com, on Twitter at SkiffyInfanti, on Facebook at The SkiffyInfanti Show, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash SkiffyInfanti. Our intro and outro music comes from The Launch by Cronux. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.